This is Filtered Noise. My co-host, as always, is Bray Grimes, and I'm Vincent Giles. This has been a strange week, politically and socially. My dog has been unwell, which is part of the reason for the slightly late release of this episode. Beginning this week, I will be introducing each episode by noting the following. This podcast is recorded in multiple places on the lands of the people of the Kulin Nations, and sovereignty has never been ceded. We talk about Joe Rogan and Spotify, moving into a heap of music that Bray has been listening to, and eventually some gear. We won't ever try and sell you vitamins, but if you'd like to support us financially, check us out on Coffee, link in our website. You can also support us by sharing an episode or a link to the podcast with your friends and colleagues. As always, we hope you enjoy this episode of Filtered Noise. Yeah, after we recorded the podcast last week, Peter Evans put out a new album. Oh, sick. It's, it's like, it's just ridiculously good trumpet playing. He's so good. Which is, I know, he's, <laughs> yeah, he's actually incredible in many, many ways. Mm. Like his, I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time talking to him yeah. about his approach to music. Um, obviously, I wrote part of my thesis on him. Um, Did you? But also... Yeah, I used probably a case study. Interesting. Yeah, it was originally on Stockhausen, but then I sort of ran into trouble interviewing Marcus Stockhausen. Yeah, right. Um, which is a story for another time. But um, yeah, I ended up using Peter Evans and Ivan Lonning, who's this, uh, um, I want to say, Norwegian trumpet player, um, and how they used different multiphonic techniques. But, yeah, because very, very different players in different ways. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. But when, so, Peter, like, when Peter came to Australia, one of the things he talked to me about with his approach to music is he's just like, oh, it's kind of like spinning plates, but you're in a sci-fi novel at the same time. I'm like, hmm. oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. It's like multiple things on the go at one time. <laughs> yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like yeah, yeah. Did you hear um, him and Tristram as soloists in the Aaron Cassidy? Um, no, no. Record former boundaries. Mm. No, I didn't. Bonkers. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> Tristram is insane as well. Like he's yeah. he's one of my favorite. Like it's <laughs> just two of my favorite trumpet players. Yeah. So yeah, and like um, yeah, it's so good. Yeah. Sorry, what were you going to say? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, I was going to say one, one of the other things that, um, that really touched me, one of the words he's like, one of the phrases he said that really touched me and I really want to take it into every bit of music I make from here on in mm-hmm. is that he creates music not as being goal-orientated but as being path-orientated. I like that. It's it's an, another one of those sayings that sort of creeps into your mind and you think about it as your approach to music instantly. But mm. goal or like path orientated rather than goal orientated, it just makes so many sense in so many ways. Especially as, uh, as somebody who came from that instrument, where mm. it's like, you know, in improvised music, it's often a solo instrument or. Uh, or, you know, it's kind of almost meant to stand out. But then in an orchestral setting, a lot of the times you're playing 
as a part of a section. And um, mm. I feel like that narrative fits with both of those, that the narrative of path orientated rather than goal orientated fits with both of those uh, fairly well. Yeah. Mm. And then in taking it over into electronic music mm. fits perfectly. It also seems to resonate really strongly with um, experimental music practices in the like Cajun and post Cajun sense. Mm. So thinking about experimental music as accepting the output regardless of whether you like it or not as one aspect yes. of experimental music practice so that the goal is not to make something necessarily the best it can be but to let go of i guess the goal really but to let yeah. go let go of yourself and and let the process let the um let the path take over to use that that term yeah like maybe even um the releasing of inhibition yeah 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 there's um richard barrett um in his phd thesis um and i think probably in his book as well which i haven't read yet but it's on my um list to buy talks about music and he talks about composition and improvisation and, and the link between the two quite a lot um, and how he doesn't necessarily see them as different practices, not from the sense that, but what partially and, and I think fairly trivially from the sense that improvising is composing in the moment. So there's that yeah. obvious aspect of it, but he, he sort of views it as both activities as navigating a, um, well, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's something along the lines of navigating like a path of potentials kind of thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I feel like there's, there are certain, there's certain times where I felt like I've made something that isn't quite successful or, um, like it doesn't seem to achieve the outcome that I set it, set out for it to be, Mm. but even then there's still something that I like about it. Like there's that intrinsic quality about it where I've just like, I went down this journey. I sort of, I've patched this way. I've turned these knobs in this order and done this thing where at the end of it, I think, well, it's the, maybe the path is the one thing, the thing I loved about it mm. rather than the outcome. Even if I have said, I think cause, um, maybe maybe because of the classical training um, or just formal education in general in music, we are sort of um, outcome-driven yeah. a lot of the time. Well, also um, capitalism, you know, right? Oh, yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Buy the thing to do the thing, and <laughs> that is the thing. Well, yeah. yeah. And, but, uh, yeah sorry, yeah. I'll come back to that. Um, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, this is going to be a good episode. <laughs> I can feel it. Um, but yeah, because um, a lot of what we're we're taught as normal, I guess, in formal education, is that the the goal is the outcome, and that's that's the the ideal. Whereas I feel like a lot of um, my favorite improvisers 
definitely. Mm. And um, maybe to a, to a similar extent, my favorite composers and performers, mm-hmm. I'll put them in a different, in, in a, in a category, not on their own, but separately as well. Um, a lot of what makes them exciting is the path mm. um, to the journey. Yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah. So I found the um, one of the many quotes in the Richard Barrett. I, I thought I'd read it to you because I think you'd find it really interesting, um, if that's okay. Yeah, of course, please. Yeah. Um, so it's on page 14. <laughs> um, a group of instruments or even a single instrument could be uh, sorry, I'll try that again. A group of instruments or even a single instrument could also be described in, a, in the same kind of terms as a multidimensional field of possibilities through which a musical composition traces a pathway. Mm, I like that. Mm, I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's maybe that. Um, I, don't want to, I don't want to talk about Stockhausen every week. <laughs> it's something that I'm very, very aware of. Um, but it does sound like that, that um, intuitive music yeah, um, principle totally. as well. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. It also resonates. Uh, like, uh, and Barrett's not really a, what I would consider an experimental composer, but um, it does resonate with that type of um, process orientation. I guess there's also this great um, website, which you might like, Bray, which I've just got to remember. Um, To uh, maybe go go back a little ways, we started briefly talking about um, capitalism. (laughs) Yeah. But the interesting... Um, Welcome to the making uh, the, the... Filtered Noise podcast, by the way, everyone. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Welcome to uh, Marxism Mondays. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I kid. Um, so in, there's this, uh, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with this, and I'm not familiar with it much at all, but um, in Immanuel Kant wrote a critique of instrumental reason. Um, but there's a whole bunch of additional philosophy around instrumental reason or instrumental rationality. But I love the description of it. This is from the Plato, uh, this is from Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, in case anyone wants to go and read up on instrumental rationality. But um, it says, someone displays instrumental rationality insofar as she adopts suitable means to her ends. Instrumental rationality, by virtually any reckoning, is an important and presumably indispensable part of practical rationality. However, philosophers have been interested in it for further reasons. To take one example, it has been suggested that instrumental rationality, or some tendency toward it, is partly constitutive of intention, desire, or action. So it goes on, but the the basic premise is, and the, the biggest criticism and critique of thinking instrumentally is that the goals justify the, no, sorry, the means justify the goals or the goals justify the means. I can't remember which way it is, but basically the it's, it's all throughout the whole capitalist thing, right? So Mm. the, the goal is more profit. So get that by any means. The means, yeah. The goal justifies the means. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's a little like I, the reason why I'm crapping on about it so much is I just think that in music being path oriented, that that phrase is really beautiful because it, it is the opposite of goal oriented, like literally the opposite of goal oriented, but it also means that the, the end is amorphous in a way, right? Through, yeah. through tracing the pathway, you're not justifying the path to get to an end. You're, de- mm. you're blurring the end by focusing on the path. I think that's what yeah. I think there's um, there's something similar that um, makes me think about like the idea of um, music not being goal orientated. The fact that people play, you know, all their lives is one of them. But one quote, and I um, I think I've heard it from about a dozen people at least, <laughs> is that um, sound hangs in the air mm. um, and then it disappears. Mm-hmm. So so it doesn't even matter um if you, if i mean on a very simplistic level if your goal is to play sweet home alabama on guitar for example um then it's it's a very succinct goal that doesn't mean anything necessarily it might yeah. mean that you achieve something technical in the terms of facility on guitar but it's all very inward think inward thinking yeah and very um, inward focused. Mm. Whereas when you start creating music and starting make, start making music, that becomes the path is yeah. to make, to create. Yeah. And that's an endless endeavor. Whereas yeah. if the goal is to make music, then you, you can do that by learning sweet home Alabama on guitar. Totally. But, but it's not, it's not the path. Yeah. <laughs> to it's, making it's the music. End. It's the goal, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, the going back to Pete Evans, what's the album called and where can I get it? Because okay. I'm into. Well, it is on Bandcamp under oh, his awesome. um, label, Mim? which is, um, his label is More is More. Yes. Yeah. When you type in Peter Evans, I think you'll get up to him. But it's called Into the Silence and it's live in China. Um, and it is absurdly good in terms of um it's not electronic in any way one thing i really do appreciate though um just as we are talking about like electronics in general but also like acoustics and sound in general Mm. um pete evans has a particular way of um using the microphone and using microphones and i think it's very prevalent on his solo records Interesting. Um, so if anyone's ever interested in um, particularly horn miking or horn recording, uh, I suggest going and listening to a Peter Evans album, uh, Peter Evans solo album, because it's a very, very clear representation. What he, what I think he does at least, um, I've seen him in a couple of different scenarios, but um, as far as I can tell is that he has a, a, a bell mic, which is very, very near. And then he has overheads over the top, which capture um, things that make it all sound a lot more organic um, that you wouldn't necessarily attribute to a part of a good recording. Things like mm. sound of the breath, mm-hmm. um, like valves clicking up and down, 
Um, but also the natural reverberation of the room is picked up beautifully by those sorts of mics as well. Yeah, all, all this, a lot of the stuff that um, would be kind of in a pure sort of classical recording would be undesirable or even a jazz inverted mm. commas recording. Um, yeah. Yes, awesome. Yeah. Thanks for that. I was, definitely I was, check that one out. Yeah, I just um, added it to my Bandcamp shopping cart and uh, it's, joined, it's joined a growing list. Uh, oh, my God. So <laughs> I really want, um, like, if I was to get any social media feedback ever, like asking an audience a question mm. through a podcast, I really want to ask how many items are in your wish list on Bandcamp. Oh, there's a wish list? I didn't, even know, I didn't even know that was a function. How do you do that? Oh, no, no, no. So wish list is you just click the little heart and it ends up in your wish list so you can purchase it later. Oh. Just sure to be clear, I have 55 things in my wish list right now. Wow. Well, I, I have four in my cart, but I can't even find the wish list. Oh, right. There it is. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. All right, can I add uh, a whole bunch of things to my wish list? Thanks, Bray. That's a that's a hot tip. No worries. Uh, look, I've been every every time I find something that I'm like, oh, I have to. So after, just so everyone knows, we talk about music a lot, and we always ask our, um, each other what we've been listening to in the week, and I always. Um, put Vince's recommendation in my list wish list <laughs> so that I can listen to them later. If they're on Bandcamp, that is. Yeah. If they're not, then I might save them to like a YouTube playlist or whatever other means they're out there. Yeah, yeah, I tend to um, do the same with Bandcamp stuff um, mm. and Spotify also. If I can't wait until I can afford to buy stuff on Bandcamp, I do a cheeky thing and, and listen on Spotify. But... Um, a, I do pay for Spotify, even though I would prefer not to, um, <laughs> just, uh, yeah. I actually, as a side note, I had Apple music for a long time and I switched to Spotify recently, uh, like a month, two months ago, but I still had an Apple music membership for about half of that time. It's from when I switched mm-hmm. to Spotify and I was really curious to a, B, the audio quality with good gear. So I, I um, went out into my studio and got the same tune from, uh, I got multiple tunes from different time periods because they'll be mastered differently. So modern stuff tends to sound better on both um, due to digital mastering, whereas conversions of older stuff don't tend to sound as good on either. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting. I did, a, did some ABs and I definitely noticed when Spotify, when you pay for Spotify and, um, activate the high quality streaming, it sounds noticeably better than really. Music. Yeah. Not that Apple music sounds bad. I just noticed that the Spotify does sound noticeably better on the paid accounts. It sounds like it sounds like trash on the free account. It's mm. horrendous, but on, on the paid account, it sounds better. Um, and I've always done this thing, not always, since this, since I gave into streaming platforms about four years ago, I've done this thing um, where I always try, look, someone out there is going to hate me for this. That's cool. Um, 
but heavily commercial stuff, I just don't really care about. I feel like the subscription is adequate for highly commercial stuff. Same with YouTube. It's all, I have no ethical complaint about that, but anything that's independent or smaller artists, I would much prefer to buy either physical copies or Bandcamp digital copies. Um, yep. A, because the Bandcamp stuff is vastly better quality than anything on Apple or Spotify or anything else. Um, and B, because it supports them more directly. But yeah, for commercial stuff, I just don't care. <laughs> uh, yeah, I figure the other way is if I'm going to com- um, support a commercial artist, the best way to do that is to go and see them live mm. because I've got a better chance of seeing them live than I do uh, small independent artists from, say, Ontario in Canada. That's 100% true, yeah. Yeah, so I'd, I'd rather, uh, to support your argument, I'd rather buy their stuff in as direct means as I possibly can. Yeah. Um, and that's live and I, stuff and merchandise, right? For yeah, that's right. That, yeah, that's right. And to, to, to be fair, there's not, there's not many of them that I am really interested in seeing. I mean, there's mm. a lot of, a lot of them, which I are, but a lot of them don't really to hear that often or, mm. Um, mm. but it's interesting that you should say that about the sound quality too. I, I hadn't really thought about it because I'm not, I don't really, I mean, I stream through YouTube, which is various sound quality. Mm. Um, and they, and Google have a platform, which is YouTube music as well. Yeah. Um, which is, it's probably no better or worse than Apple music. I would assume. Yeah. Like they're um, all, they're all terrible ethically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's oh, the reality. Speaking of speaking of the ethics of Spotify and things like that, um, I thought something came up that was really interesting and I really want to get your thoughts on it because I haven't really formed mine yet, um, which is uh, Joe Rogan, who, Old like him or not. Yep. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like him or not, <laughs> he is the probably one of the biggest media stars in in our modern-day era. And he just signed a $100 million contract to Spotify. So his um, his podcast is going to be exclusively on Spotify. That's interesting. Which I'm not sure if it's Spotify or Spotify Premium. I might have to check that as well. Yeah. But I thought that's a really interesting move. Like it's not an interesting move from him because if I got paid a hundred million dollars to talk about talk to people on for extended interviews on the internet. It's like, of course I would, but yeah. um, at, at the same time, I think it's really interesting because all these people who I thought, you know, like who, people who were supporting the Spotify thing and saying, you know, it's really, really good for artists and things like that. They're basically going to see this influx of people who are signing up just to listen to Joe Rogan, who haven't been listening to artists before. That's true. Who, who thought that music was, music was, you know, ex, there's an expected, um, lack of fee on music, mm. which has always been there as podcasts. And now people are asking to pay for podcasts as well. So yeah. I think there's like this sort of shift in balance like that, you know, for so long we paid for music and radio was free and talk back and interviews were free. And then all of a sudden I think it's just maybe, maybe it's just had a bit of a shift. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that. So the comparison 
more broadly talking about podcasts, um, a lot of the ones that I listen to will have a Patreon or some kind of crowdfunding, not, it's not really crowdfunding, but crowd support type structure. And it reminds me a lot of community radio, you know, here in Melbourne, obviously we're lucky we've got Triple R, PBS, CNFM, 3CR, there's, there's a, an abundance of community radio stations which all run on a subscription slash patronage basis, right? Or basis, I should mm. say. So that, 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 that podcast mechanism reminds me a lot of that, where the community that actually benefits from the podcast will support the podcast. So it's interesting that Rogan is being paid presumably by Spotify to go yes. exclusively with Spotify. And it reminds me, um, Russell Brand um, switched his podcast yeah. over to Luminary, which is another premium podcast service, subscription-based yeah. premium pop- podcast service. Um, Lena Dunham um, took, yeah. I can't remember the name of that podcast. It's quite good. Um, took that podcast over to Luminary as well. And I get the feeling that Luminary isn't doing very well. Um, it might well be. I, I just get the feeling that's doing very well, probably for those reasons that you said about people have an expectation that podcasts are free. So it's quite clever for both Spotify and Rogan to do an exclusive with Spotify because mm. people already expect to pay for Spotify if they want to have ad-free listening. Mm. or not pay for it if they are happy to have ads and lower audio quality. Yeah. And so absolutely. So it is a bit of a, there's already that expectation there, whereas paying for a service of podcasts, which is what Luminary is, doesn't necessarily have that. I don't know. Yeah. I think one of the other things is that because Spotify is a multimedia platform and I feel like, Maybe artists do win out of it too. This is my other other synthesized thought of it. Because when people pay for a, a premium subscription to something, say it's Spotify, and they get to hear Joe Rogan wax poetic about carnivore diet and other things I don't give a fuck about <laughs> um, for three hours at a time. With some vitamins. Although presumably on With, Spotify there'll be no vitamins. That would presumably well, be part of it. I, I, I guess that's part of it too, but um, I mean, he can still interview the people who make those vitamins. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how he's going to curate it, um, but or who his team is going to curate it. One of, one of the things that's really interesting is once they start paying for a subscription service and they're paying, then obviously between those episodes each week, they're going to use their subscription possibly to listen to music mm. and that might have an impact on the industry in a positive way, I think. Maybe. It would be a pretty small impact would be my thought, given how badly yeah. Spotify pay people. Um, yeah, well, I, <laughs> I, I didn't want to bring up the devil in the room that Spotify pay artists like shit. Well, they, but... they, they don't and they do. Spotify's in this interesting position. I'm not sure if you know this, Bray, and, and maybe you do, and apologies if you do, that they run at a loss, right? Oh, really? Yeah. So they need to figure out a way to become not lossy probably within the next five years would be my guess. I don't know what their actual, you know, um, monetary situation is like, but it's they run at a loss because the big record labels don't let them pay poorly. 
Mm. Otherwise, they take the content away. Right. Whereas independent artists have no such power. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting situation because it means that Spotify don't pay the same to all artists. It means they pay more to big record labels. The record labels take their gigantic cart, of course, Mm. and the artists probably get even less (laughs) on major labels than on... um, uh, if they're independent, but that it's just it's just not a winning thing for for artists. It's it's as yeah. pure, it is purely a consumer model. It's great as a consumer, mm. but it's like it's, so. It's interesting if, if Spotify, like obviously they had a podcast. We're on Spotify as a podcast. That's true. Um, I presume we won't get any money for that ever. That's fine. <laughs> Um, what? Hey, I was going to say we'll have to collect our check soon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Spotify will take our hundred k. Thanks. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. Hundred mil, rather. Hundred k would yeah. be. Yeah, you know, I'll I'll, I'll take a hundred k. But yeah, so anyway, I'm ra- rambling a little bit, but it's kind of an, Spotify is in a really interesting situation because they—that's mm. all their business is, right? It's mm. not a- Apple can lose on music because they have phones and oh yeah they're a tech yeah google's the same they google can lose on the play store that it's not going to be a problem for them but spotify is in the interesting situation where it will probably be a problem for them at some point in the future yeah right i think that it makes that move of getting you know, in in just maybe arguably the world's biggest podcast mm. on their platform exclusively mm. as a way to get subscribers over. And I think it's really smart on their part. Mm. Um, I'm, I'd love it if it had a positive impact on um, the music industry in general. Yeah. I feel like there's going to be a whole heap of artists that are saying hundred million dollars for one podcast and I get 30 cents a year for my album. Yeah. yeah <laughs> There's definitely yeah. going to be a whole heap of artists that feel like that. Yeah. Um, that's true. But with the light of information that you just um, told me, that's, that makes that situation um, much more palatable. I think when you look at it as a investment into mm. the platform rather than, um, an investment into what already exists on there that's currently not really making them money. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, that is interesting on Rogan's behalf, though. That's, that is. Mm. Well, yeah. yeah. So. It's still going to be a bad show. <laughs> um, no, no offense to people who, who like Joe Rogan. I'm not having a dig at him in particular, but he does have some really objectionable guests in terms of my political perspective and my point of view. Yeah. People I agree with too, but I just don't care. Yeah. I I tend to agree. Um, And that's Mm. fine. You know, you know, I feel a little bit the same about Sam Harris nowadays. I I used to quite enjoy Sam Harris's podcast and I've just gone off it a lot recently in the last six months or so. It's just, I don't know. Yeah. He, he's also an interesting case study in the fact that he took his podcast 
um, and privatized it himself. Yes. So he runs an in-house subscription service, which I think yes. is, I thought when he did that was really interesting. And one thing that he's maintained is that he doesn't, he doesn't accept sponsorship or yeah. anything like that. And he well, actually, which, he, he actually stopped using Patreon to uh, over ethical reasons, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Well, this is, um, this is a really interesting thing too. Um, speaking of Patreon and funding and things like that and crowdfunding, um, I have talked to musicians who um, have floated the idea of crowdfunding an album and things mm. like that. And I'm, I'm in two minds about it because mm -hmm. I see a lot of people on crowdfunding or pre-ordering platforms who don't really need it. Yeah. Um, and to which I think it basically becomes a circle jerk of money um, in some communities, or it becomes an unnecessary pre-ordering scheme, basically. A fake but hype. there are, sorry, like a false hype type thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which um, one thing I don't really like about Bandcamp is the ability to pre-order a digital album. That yeah. thing <laughs> sometimes sometimes irks me. I'm just like, it's not like it's limited supply or anything. It's, I'm totally happy yeah. with that, that pre-ordering thing with physical stuff. Like that, that's totally yeah. fine by me. But digital stuff, I agree with you totally. Yeah, absolutely. If you, I have to pre-order a vinyl because you know vinyl is really, really inex like it's really, really expensive mm -hmm. to to make. So I totally expect an independent artist to really want to get at least a rough idea of numbers totally before before they go out and print five hundred vinyls and yeah. realize that they can only sell sell ten. Yeah, which yeah, it's that would be a hard pill to swallow. Totally. Um, yeah. So. But pre-ordering digital, I think, is a bit of a like I'm. I'm sure somebody's gonna somebody's gonna tell me why it exists. Um, but once you've recorded the album, just put it out there. Come on, mm. or make us wait <laughs> until you actually release it. But yeah, the crowdfunding thing is an interesting one because I think the original idea is that you could do um, bigger projects. Um, that you wouldn't be able to necessarily fund yourself. Mm. Um, but now it's turned into, uh, I'm making an album, but I need your, you. Yeah. And a lot of, it's hard to distinguish where people are need, like needs to fund from a crowd through means that aren't just going out and playing gigs anymore. Mm. And I see that in electric electronic music, I do see um, some people who really do need support um, because they are making larger scale projects, installations and whatnot, mm. um, who don't get as much funding as somebody who's just making another album mm. um, from their bedroom. Mm. But yeah, talking about funding in music is a very, very dicey topic. It's interesting. Um, um, are you into Amanda Palmer at all? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I don't, I don't even think the the term couch surfing was a thing until she came around. Yeah, probably not. I think she invented that term. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, I really like. There's a, there's there's an inherent catch twenty two with crowdfunding, isn't there? Like, you have to be f well known enough to have enough people that give a shit to give you money ahead of time, 
right? Yeah. So it, it doesn't benefit, generally speaking, it doesn't seem to benefit, um, you know, what I assume is the big percentage of independent artists who are struggling and just wanting to make some music mm. and, and, you know, can't afford to, right? Yeah. But I, so the, the, you have to have a degree of success in order to do it. But by which point do you need to crowdfund? I think that's, is, that's kind of what you're getting at, isn't it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I, I think the Amanda Palmer example is somebody who's, I think, used her audience in a particularly, in, like in an intuitive and ingenious way. Mm. Like she hasn't really exploited the platforms which she's belonged to mm. at all. In fact, a lot of times she's invented the platform to exist yeah. to, to make it happen. And that comes to sort of my point where it's like, there are people who genuinely need a platform like Indiegogo, for mm. example, to get their project up and running yeah. to, to really, you know, make ends meet to make a project happen. Mm but they're not the ones who are generally successful with the crowdfunding platform. Whereas the people who are known, like you say, are. Mm. Yeah. Or, or who have a large, you know, um, periphery social network that are, yeah, yeah. That are keen, um, which is good. Like I think crowdfunding is a great thing overall, but it's just this weird situation, isn't it? Like, yeah, I feel, I feel, um, feel really, I would feel icky um, trying to crowdfund an album, whereas I feel like I kind of would prefer to do it through playing gigs and mm. taking that money and putting it into a, like a recording yeah. fund. Like, because and maybe it's just like, Oh, the old school way of doing it. If you yeah, want maybe, to we're, it. maybe we're showing our age here, Bray. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Back in my day, <laughs> we played gigs, <laughs> but also the importance of actually having a product out there is far greater than it ever has been Yeah. Um, in terms of music because your digital representation is something that can take you worldwide um, yeah. and a gig is not something. But that that, that being said, though, um, uh, this is something I've been thinking about for quite a few years through through building Tilda up and mm. um, with Alice and other things as well is, is, is it true that you need a worldwide audience or is it better to have a good community based audience? Oh so, yeah. yeah. So, um, oh, and by audience, I just mean community that gives a shit. Now that could be mm. fairly dispersed, but it still needs to be somewhat geographically centered to support your life, primary life performing. Mm. work um so it's, it's just something i've been pondering in the back of my head for and yeah. actually talking about in my lecturing work and stuff for, for a few years yeah absolutely i i really agree with that like part of part of my entire life really is um contributing to communities not mm. just belonging to them yeah um and that can be in so many different ways. Mm. Like it can be as a maker, it can be as somebody who just turns up sometimes. 
um, which is how I feel about jujitsu a lot of the time. I feel like I'm a grappling dummy more than I am somebody who wins. Um, (laughs) But but like it's a community, there's friendships to be made. And mm. yeah, definitely there is something about having people close by that supports that notion. I feel like those communities expand mm-hmm. um, and when they expand, they become um, more accessible in some ways as well, mm. which is one thing that I can really appreciate about having a worldwide audience as yes, opposed less, less, to say. Less, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, and some of those communities are really accessible as Mm. well. I think, um, in terms of being able to take, um, something that might even be maybe a challenging experience elsewhere. It's when you take something, what the music of Tilda Mm. and take it internationally to say uh, Singapore, for example, you'll have an audience there that will be, I think will be supportive and be willing to um, contribute in different ways, but you have a different approach that you might leave behind and then they sprout a community from there. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And and I find that once, if a community is, uh, at least initially geographically centered and mm. and more um, physical, it grows a little bit more organically as well because there's yeah. a genuine vested interest in it. Like, you know, I would just from you telling me about jujitsu, if I was interested in jujitsu, I'd be like, where do you train? I, I'd be interested in that because I've got yeah. a personal connection to it rather than yeah. going on Google and going jujitsu dojo's near yeah. me you know yeah yeah and you the thing yeah and i guess one of the funny things about that too is like we all operate on the the overarching framework is music yeah right and then within tilda it's exploratory or experimental music mm. or new music those three categories and then if you sprout that off into and you type that in in like and put in a location say Amsterdam, you will get a completely different result. Yeah, totally. But, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny. It's the same in jujitsu. Like you look up jujitsu and in Japan, it's like, it's basically Aikido and in Brazil it's Brazilian jujitsu. And then in Australia, there's sort of both because they're Mm. arts that have come over here. So yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's actually a thing in music too. Like, taking uh, jazz somewhere and going over to Europe and saying, Oh, where's the nearest jazz venue? You're probably going to hear something that's very Euro influenced in mm. one venue yeah, um, or another, um, as opposed to being like American jazz. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You're going to get that, that geographically centered music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, music Which is like, no yeah. Yeah. Cause after almost a hundred years, you'd think that, well, and I do think that this has probably happened. There's a lot of Euro jazz in Australia or Euro influenced jazz in Australia. There's a lot of American influenced jazz everywhere in the world mm. and vice versa. And I wonder how, I often wonder how far like the Australian accent on jazz has, mm. has penetrated and vice versa. I, I think it's interesting um, to think about electronic music because Australia was. Mm. Um, quite a in the academic sense at least quite a 
big player, I guess, in early electronic music. Although, um, you know, I teach history of electronic music and Australian innovation is very rarely talked about. <laughs> so it's just, it's just an interesting thing. I'm not the right person to really talk about the Australian history of electronic music, but I think um, Warren Burt has written a bit about it, I think. Um, but it's, it's just interesting, you know, at the Melbourne Exhibition Centre? No. The one in Carlton. Um, oh, I know the one you're talking about. Melbourne Museum? Um, I want to say it's like the... Um, Where IMAX is. Is that Melbourne Museum? Oh. No, I don't know where you're talking about one <laughs> now. I thought the one that was in... I thought the one that was in North Melbourne was... It did have a name. I even went last year. It was really good. But it was like an electronic and synthesizer festival of some sort. Was, it, was that at Granger? Granger Museum? Yeah. At Melbourne Uni? Yeah. So that is um, that is part of it. But at, um, I think it's the Melbourne Museum. Uh, I'd have to double check. Um, but so, you know, show notes, I guess. But um, Link in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> they have um, one of the early computers that, and it was a computer that was used for very early computer music and uh, it's one of I think three surviving in the world now um, something like that um, I could be wrong I could be mangling this with the Synthi 100 which would have been at the uh, Granger Museum which is one of the early synthesizers which Melbourne Uni have one of um, but yeah anyway oh. ramble 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 <laughs> um, <laughs> that's yeah, that's pretty much it. all of these episodes. Yeah. We feel like we're rambling and then we cut it together and it's like, oh, it's actually, it's okay. It's not too <laughs> this one's been interestingly structured. This isn't our normal flow of conversation. I, I wanted to uh, ask, you've been, you said you've been listening to quite a bit this week. Are there any other recommendations? That... Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I haven't made a list because because I was, I've been listening to so much music. <laughs> um <clears throat> I I discovered this trumpet player called Dan Rosenboom, who's a LA trumpet player, um, who has a label called um, I want to say it's called Orenda. Mm-hmm. I could be butchering the title, but Orenda, um, and it kind of has this. So one thing I used to listen to a lot when I was younger was I was a rock and metal kid nice. basically i listened to my mum's led zeppelin records and deep purple and um music like that in my more formative years of um listening to music and appreciating music so Orenda, yeah on, on Bandcamp, it's um run by dan rosenboom who's this uh trumpeter and cornetist from la who's mostly actually been involved in um like i guess uh film and that sort of commercial scene, hmm. but it's released some really interesting records and they kind of follow this sort of post rock jazz kind of cool. also like proggy metal kind of vibe as well in yeah. some cases. Um, so there's a few albums on that um, label, which I've been really interested in um, including a couple where Dan Rosenboom's on. He's got mm-hmm. one called absurd in the Anthropocene. I don't know how to say that. Anthropocene. Uh, Anthropocene. Yeah. 
Anthropocene, yeah. um, which is quite good. Um, he's got an album with Burning Ghost called American Circus and a new one, which is one of those ones I was talking about how I detest called a uh, digital pre-order. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, it's by a drummer called Caleb Dollister called Daily Thumbprint Collection 3, The Wandering. Awesome. And there's a couple of tracks that he's pre-released on that, which are really, really um, good. And they're very post-rock metal, not very electronic, but there mm. are a lot of gems in there if you're if you're interested. In yeah, I'm just looking through the, the record label. And when I typed it in, I don't know if it was my um, computer just guessing what I was looking for, but it looks like I've been to the Bandcamp site before, so I'm curious what I was looking at. I can't, nothing's jumping out at me as that I was yeah. looking at previously, but um, it's a very, very diverse label in the, mm. in under the um, category of sort of improvised music, I guess. Yeah. Right. Um, awesome. Yes. So that's one of the things I've been listening to. Another thing I've been listening to is, um, from a band called Sugar Stick and Xerox. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, you sent me that. That was sick. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, it's just synth, clarinet, and drums. Yeah. And it's really, really wild, and I'm really into it. I, I've got to give it a couple of listens, but I'm re I've <laughs> really enjoyed it so far. Yeah. You had a listen to? I had a, a quick listen to one or two tracks on it, yeah. Not, not the full yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, very cool. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like sometimes you know how like the first time you hear an instrument combination before that you haven't really heard, mm. and you think, oh wow, that's quite quite nice, and or you <laughs> go, oh, I like the clash of that, or there's yeah. something about that. Like for me, the example that I think of is like guitar and vibraphone. The first oh, yeah. time I heard that together, yeah, I'm just yeah. like, oh, that's, you know, that's really pretty and I really, really like that. But clarinet and synthesizer is <laughs> a surprisingly winning combination. Yeah. And, I, and my overactive muso brain thinks, well, clarinet in terms of sound, in terms of like a wave shape is quite pure mm. um, in comparison to brass instruments. Mm -hmm. uh, and even and even other woodwind instruments, yeah, with the exception being flute, which is much more pure. Yeah, flute actually, yeah, flute's probably a good example. But depends on how the flute's recorded because you get a lot of white noise from the mm. fret. Yeah. Whereas you don't really get that as much in the clarinet. Yeah, not not unless you play in a low volume, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, or if you're buried in a large ensemble. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a. For, I'm really into that. Um, another, I'm, I'm telling you, I've listened to a whole heap of music this week. Um, Good. There's a, it's compensating for there's, me. <laughs> there's an album by a band called, well, an artist called Tape Loop from Charleston, South Carolina, mm -hmm. who's got a really, really long and interesting catalogue. He's released a whole heap of music that he's recorded straight to tape from when he was a, like a, I guess a teenager or a, hmm. or even a preteen, which is um, kind of cool to see because now you get like a, a an audio timeline of his, Whoa. his career. I'm just looking um, at the band cam now. Wow. Yeah. But, Contagion, which is a 2020 release, um, I'm 
guessing released during lockdown. Yeah, April 23rd, 2020, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. has some amazing music on it um, using OPZ, OP1, Digitact, uh, Monotron, and some some samples, basically. Wow, so cool. Yeah, it's. I think one. It's another one of those things where I look at an artist's catalog and I go, "Oh, that's really. I really love that because I, I. And it makes me wish, God, I wish I had a kept. You know, some of the, even like old MIDI files or something that you mm. keep from Finale from back yeah, in the day yeah. when you were in yeah. high school, just to just to hear what you were like. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. How good. Yeah, I really like the idea. And his albums are great as well. Okay. Added to the wish list. Yeah. And then there's another one where I like the I I like the idea, but I'm not as big of a fan of the album yet. Mm, okay. So it's a duo that goes under the name of Rovox six two five. Um and it's Clive Henry who's um from a few bands and Lee Stroke. Uh, so, sorry, Lee Stoko. Um, and this album is called Too Close to Home. And it's inspired by Def Leppard, um, Confectionery, Tape Noise, Robocop, and Doors to Nowhere, which I, I love it when people don't take themselves too seriously. Did you send Did you send this one to me during the week? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I don't think I got it. Hands up to, to C60. So it's hand dubbed to C60, which for those of you who don't know, C60 is just a tape. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just guessing like cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea that the music I'm not as into, but there is a certain sound to it that is quite enjoyable. There's a texture that's quite enjoyable. Mm. Um, the ideas that come out are probably a little plain, um, for me, but mm-hmm. the the actual intent and the execution and some of the textures that come out of it are very interesting, and I really really like it for that reason. Yeah, cool. I'll check it out properly. Um, yeah, I'll add it to it's my wish interesting list. to find it Yeah, that's that's see, I've taught some, I've taught been something. I feel <laughs> great. <laughs> Awesome. So in your in your uh, maybe slightly more lackluster week of listening to music, what well, have you heard? Look, um, the as I said, not a lot. I listened to a few things he sent through to me, um, but I did when I went on a band camp, you know, shopping cart ad frenzy. Um, re-added something that I've been meaning to get for a long time and still haven't, uh, which is Love Songs by Thembi Sodell. This album, Love Songs, is one that I, it's been on, it came out in, I'm just looking, uh, it's on Room 40. So it's been out for uh, over two years now. It came out in 2018. Um, but it's a it's a album about, or uh, I'm just going to read the thing. I think this one was like about dealing with depression and anxiety and stuff. Um, and it's part of like a sonic or an attempt at sonifying that experience uh, of anxiety and depression. It's really cool. It's, it's um, very electronic album, um, but much more in the kind of noise vein, I guess. 
it's awesome. Um, and it's, I've streamed it a few times, um, but I've been meaning to buy it for a while and just haven't got around to it, unfortunately. So that's on my priorities list. So I recommend that one. Um, that's a it's really, really deep um, sonic world, I guess. Um, what else have I been listening to? I've been listening to just some kind of easy, relatively easy listening things. So King Crimson, their entire discography is now is is on streaming services now. Um, so I've been listening to some, you know, sixties through to present prog rock. Um, been listening to Mr. Bungle's first album. Uh, yeah. Because of the talk about Mike Patton recently that we had with Tetema, um, I thought I'd dig into some of the mm. Mr. Bungle stuff. Um, I've been listening to Devin Townsend Project's album from 2010 called Key, um, which is a nice rock album. But, yeah, nothing nothing particularly that's – like those are the things that are, that are the most um, – I guess this weeky. Um, mm. I did come across a, a track or a, a piece by the composer Mark Applebaum, though, uh, from a friend mm. who's. It's called Speed Dating. Um, I think it's it's called the the piece is called Three Unlikely Corporate Sponsorships, and there's three in the series, and they are very very worth checking out as well. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar I love Mark. Mark. Yeah. I love Mark Applebaum. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's that's from 2018. The album's called Speed Dating, and uh, the, the piece is three unlikely corporate sponsorships are, are great. So, <laughs> but, yeah, I think my – that well, surprisingly enough, for somebody who hasn't listened to much music this week – there's actually a lot on there. Yeah, but it's all pretty superficial listening. Like I, it's like the all the crimson stuff I've had on in the background if I'm doing something else. Like it's not being particularly active listening. That's that's the big yeah. thing. Uh, yeah, totally. I I feel like there's there's definitely times where even stuff that you were once challenged by, maybe is the word. Mm, yeah. I don't know. Or once um intellectually fanatical about mm. become more background listening. Totally. Totally. I think but, yeah. I, I hit a point of that with, um, with a lot of music actually, but um, particularly there are Steve Lehman albums where they still surprise me, even if I do have them on the background mm. and I have to like re-listen to them. But yeah, King, King Crimson might be a little, little more, <laughs> subdued than that yeah it's interesting I, I it's almost as though because i know a lot of that music really really well from having listened to it a lot when i was younger um that it's interesting having it on as background music can actually sometimes almost lead to new insights because you know it well and so you're, yeah. you're you're suddenly made aware of something that you probably hadn't heard before as a side effect of not listening particularly actively i don't, I don't know it's quite kind of hard to describe but the other thing that I've been uh, looking into this week is the composer Morton Feldman. And um, hmm. and I quite like Feldman's works, but I don't know many of them. Like I, um, like I know enough of them, but I, I don't know his whole, just like whole oeuvre. Um, hmm. 
please forgive my poor French, anybody who knows how to actually speak it. Um, and <laughs> the, I was just, but I watched this documentary on YouTube about his life and, and stuff. And, um, you know, the, I won't gloss over the potential, um, I don't know, me too of his treatment of some individuals, um, oh. allegedly. Uh, he's, he's dead now, but it's an interesting thing. So, but uh, I just found, uh, I've been reading and watching some stuff about Feldman and he's, it's been kind of interesting to me conceptually um, because he draws so much inspiration and uh, influence from painters, uh, New York painters, I think. But I don't know if you know the story about John Cage's four minutes and 33 and the origins of that. See, I've, I reckon I've heard folklore about it. Right. But but I don't really think I know the entire story. Right. So the story, I, As far as I know, it's like a hyperbaric chamber experiment, right? There is that. That's the, that's the big folklore story. But there's, there's an, um, an aspect that's... It's not specifically about Formula 33, but it's it's about a lot of the work from that year and Formula 33 kind of encapsulates a lot of stuff that stuff like that. But he came across a painting by the name I forget. I'll have to look it up and put it in the the notes. But um, it was a this painter did like really thick paint, like white paint on a canvas and Cage was really struck by the ones with black paint as well. And Cage was really struck by these gigantic paintings that were just black paint or white paint because it was, um, so the, there was so much paint on it that there were, from afar it looked like a white canvas or a black canvas. But as you got closer, different lighting, you'd see the subtlety of the texture. Right. And huh. yeah, so this was a lot of the um, external influence on, Cage's thinking, but also on Feldman's thinking. And um, Feldman's whole thing was apparently uh, treating music as a canvas for sound. So thinking, particularly in his later life, he he started, um, like his second string quartet is somewhere around six hours long in, in its entirety. And it's all about the texture. It's all about the surface. It's not about harmony or, and it's, and it's not minimalism per se. It's not like say Arvo Pert or Louis Andreessen or, um, you know, going back a generation, you know, Philip Glass and Steve Reich and that kind of stuff. It's not like Mm. that. It's, if anything, slower and more detailed. (laughs) It's quite, it's quite interesting. So I've been quite interested in Feldman and, and it's just reinvigorated some of my, thoughts around composing electronic music actually and rather than improvising it because generally I, I'm a improvising electronic musician more than a composing one and it's just got me back into thinking about um, structuring electronic music particularly with synthesizers. Yeah, that's an interesting thought too. I, I'm, I'm sort of torn in terms of how because I – treat my my practice as like a depending on the instrument as well actually not depending on the instrument but I find like I 
generally improvise on electronic instruments, mm. but there's definitely ideas that are prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's always ideas that are prepared. Not always. Sorry, there's not always ideas that that are prepared, but there are ideas that definitely appear within certain improvisations that I'm like, mm. oh, I know what the outcome's going to be, even if it's for a, a split second. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly with modular, that's the case. With the OPZ, it's probably a little less the case, but still I don't know it all that well, so sometimes it is mm-hmm. un... <laughs> un- <laughs> uh, damn it. I don't mean it. Sorry? Unwieldy. So. Yeah, yeah, and I don't mean for it to happen. Right. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. and it just—I'm just like, oh, that result's sick. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, because I know we're on the topic of gear now, and we do have to wrap up soon. Yeah. But, yeah. but I did. Um, you did um, remind me of Soma Soma Laboratories this week, um, and I was looking at the Pulsar. Mm. Um, it wouldn't be an episode if we hadn't talked about gear. <laughs> so, so um, one thing I, I saw Stimming reviewing the the Pulsar twenty three. Mm, yeah, you sent that to me. Yeah, yeah, which is um, it's for lack of a better term, it's a drum synthesizer. Mm. Although it does a lot more than that. Mm. And the first and the first thought I had was I would love to improvise on that bit of gear. Me too. And it reminds me a lot of the masculine drum module. Yeah. Yes. Um, because it seems quite unpredictable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think there's something about that sort of chance in electronic music, especially when you don't know it as well as some other people. Like mm. I, I can't imagine... I, I love what Andrew Huang, Huang does and what Heinbach does um, and what uh, Look Bummer Computer does, but they know the instrument so well <laughs> that yeah. I think I think that the result they get is beautiful, but they know it so well. I think they can predict results a lot better than, mm. say, you or I. Um, with with the with the number of resources, mainly because also that we operate within a different paradigm to them. That's true. But, yeah. but at the at the same time, that like um, I saw some live footage of Look Mum No Computer, and I was like, that is amazing. Mm. How you know you've you've mapped out your homemade synthesizer so well that even when something goes wrong, it still sounds right in the context of what you do. Yeah, totally. Mm. I I do like with the, both the Lyra eight, which is the other bit of gear from Soma that I'm really keen on and the Pulsar 23, the folk tech masculine, all of those, the, especially the Pulsar and the masculine and specifically the drum part of the masculine. It seems so intentionally designed to be unintelligible in a way. And what yeah. I mean, and what I mean by that is that, so it seems I haven't used either of them and I'm really keen to use both, but my friend Mitch has a masculine and, and he's kind of, he knows it pretty well. And he's come to talk about the design intention where 
you're not told what any of the input-output checks do or are or route to. And so, yeah, that seems the case with the Pulsar as well, where you, you might think you're patching in like a delay, but actually that delay is part of an internally routed network that when patched just so re reroutes the information or the audio in a different way that you don't expect. Yeah. And I like I think that's actually one of I was talking to my friend Steve recently about there was a thread on um Aussie Wigglers on Facebook about it and about the design aesthetic of make noise modules as well. Mm-hmm. And how they're not really user focused. They're they're process or pathway focused would be my thought on the make noise stuff. Nice way to tie it around. I like it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thanks. Um, it's because you just look at the labeling and, you, and the routing diagrams and you're like, yeah, but when I change this, it doesn't really seem to do what I think it ought to do. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I really like that. Whereas if you think about like the dirt for, um, Oh yeah. The, mm-hmm. like, um, any, well, any dirt for product. Yeah, pretty much. Like it's really clear what it does, right? It's, yeah. It operates pretty much how you expect it to operate. Yeah. Even the more complex um, standalone pieces like Dark Energy and Dark Time from Derpa, yeah. which are my favorite Derpa pieces of equipment. Mm. Um, and I got to use them in Japan when I went to 5G Technologies, yeah. which is a wonderful store. If you're ever in Shibuya in Tokyo, it's a little difficult to find, but you take <laughs> an elevator up and walk into what would look like a kind of electronics repair store in Australia. Mm. And it's just walls of modules, lots of secondhand gear. Awesome. And if you think, if there's something you think about, it's probably there Yeah, nice. that you haven't seen before. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, but even those modules are, like they look complex, but they're extremely simple. It's like the step goes on, off, or backwards. Yeah. On on dark time, or well, not backwards. Or um, it's the end of the sequence. Like yeah. you skip it, or it's on, or it's the end of a sequence. Yeah. So it's like those sorts of designs are really, really user-friendly. And then from my understanding, like something like the mescaline and mm. some things by coma, I feel like the field kit's not like that, but um, they have a thing called the pipe. That's, I don't know if that's Soma. That, coma electronic pipe. No, that's is Soma. That Soma. Yeah, it is Soma. Sorry. Yeah. Ugh, there you go. It has to be Soma again. Again, um, like but, totally yeah. unpredictable, right? Seemingly. I've got no idea. I, I thought, like, I looked at it and go, oh, it's a horn shape. I will get this. Yeah. And, yeah. So I'm, yeah. Confident trumpet player goes, oh, it's a horn. No problem. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't make any sense, really. Like, mm. I still, I kind of get it. But Do you have one? I don't know why it is. No. Right. No. Yeah. No. I, so cool. it, it, it looks great. It's really low on the list. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to be honest. But the Pulsar is something that's really interesting because even in its design, a lot of the times because they are connectors um, that are basically 
they're just alligator clips mm. to to reroute this this um, standalone unit. If you bump one of those, it sends like it sends a charge and yeah. earth through you, totally. which means it changes the parameter. Yeah, and they're really really easy to bump. Yeah. So there's some there's another element to this machine where it's like you you like replicating something will become much more difficult than it needs to be. Mm. And I love that about what Foma have done. I think that that might be now possibly one of the highest things on my list. Yeah. Yeah. You pointed it out to me a few, few weeks ago and there's a few of those products that have worked its way onto my list now, (laughs) which is, you know, I love standalone stuff. I've, I've come around to it. I didn't think I would be. I thought I'd be that person that would have a Eurorack case full of mm. little 2HP modules and I'm really trying to cram as much stuff into my case as possible. And now I'm really, really coming around to the idea of having standalone modules mm. because, like, the thought is oh, if I had to travel somewhere, I couldn't really take my rack. I wouldn't just take my DFAM, but... Something like that I would take because it's like the possibilities are so much Yeah. More. And the mescaline is another great example. Oh, I it's, want one so bad. It packs flat too, as yeah. far as I understand. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Although, it's just yeah. a, quite fragile, right? I would imagine so. I don't know, but I would imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Anyway, looking at, looking at what I've seen of the mescaline, I think I've seen. I think Andrew Huang got his hands on it at one point. Mm. Um, I feel like he cheated because I think he put it all into Ableton, just recorded a whole heap of samples from it, and and uh, it's not cheating. Like he still made great music with it, but at the same time, I would have loved to see just on its own its organic thing. Mm. Cause he does that with so many other things. He did that with the, the subharmonicon, which yeah. is still currently Top really, really high on, really, really high on my list. It's also <laughs> really, really high on the price on my list. Yeah. Just below the pulsar, though. Is it? No, the pulsar is only like eleven hundred in Australia. Uh, really? I yeah. thought the pulsar. Uh, I I looked up the pulsar on Soma's website. Oh, maybe and it was fifteen hundred euros. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of the lyra or lira. Then. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, oh, look at it; it's, it's very it's such a beautiful bit of gear. Disappointing for me, though. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. The the pulsar is a beautiful bit of equipment. It does look really, really nice too, and it's laid out in a way that's um, it looks a lot easier than it probably <laughs> is. Yeah, yeah. I want one. Anyway, that's... on that note, should we? Yeah. Thank you for listening. Yeah, that's, that's if you would like to get in touch, email us on filterednoisecast at gmail.com, Instagram us at filterednoisecast, or visit our website, filterednoisecast.wordpress.com. Subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, or by sharing on social media or in other ways. Head and tail music by Bribery. Visit Instagram at thisisbribery. This has been a Faulty Cat production.